Hello, I'm Dr. Jim Horton, Chair of the Guidelines Committee for the Infectious Disease Society of America. I would like to welcome you to the Clinical Guidelines podcast series, where we will regularly keep you up to date on important new guidelines published by the Infectious Disease Society of America. Leading this program is Dr. Neil Skolnick, who is Professor of Family Medicine at Temple University School of Medicine and Associate Director of the Family Medicine Residency Program at Abington Memorial Hospital. Welcome, Dr. Skolnick. Thank you. I'm looking forward to going over the guidelines. And now for the program. Today, we're going to review the highlights of the Clinical Practice Guideline on the Management of Adults with Hospital-Acquired and Ventilator-Associated Pneumonia. The 2016 guidelines were published in Clinical Infectious Diseases and are issued jointly by the Infectious Disease Society of America and the American Thoracic Society. Joining us today are two of the members of the committee, Dr. Andre Khalil and Dr. Mark Matursky. Dr. Khalil is professor in the Department of Internal Medicine, Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha. Dr. Matursky is professor of medicine and Associate Chief of Service, Department of Medicine, and Director, Center for Bronchiectasis Care at the University of Connecticut Health Center, and is also in the Pulmonary and Critical Care Department in Farmington, Connecticut. Healthcare-associated pneumonia and ventilator-associated pneumonia account for 22% of all hospital-acquired infections. Approximately 10% of patients who required mechanical ventilation were diagnosed with ventilator associated pneumonia. The term hospital-acquired pneumonia refers to an episode of pneumonia not associated with mechanical ventilation, and ventilator-associated pneumonia refers to pneumonia occurring in a person on a ventilator. The 2016 guidelines removed the concept of healthcare-associated pneumonia, and it took pneumonia that occurs in skilled care facilities and nursing homes as being separate than hospital-acquired pneumonia. Dr. Matursky, can you discuss the rationale for for that change, that is to drop the term healthcare-associated pneumonia and not to include skilled care nursing facility pneumonias in that category? Uh, Sure, and and thanks for uh, inviting us uh, to take take part in this podcast. Um, Well, we didn't specifically recommend uh, dropping the term healthcare-associated pneumonia. Uh, we We were silent on that issue. Um, but we did feel that uh, patients who come into the hospital from the community or from a nursing home with pneumonia uh, would be best dealt with in the community-acquired pneumonia guidelines. We felt that the target audience for this population is different than uh, the critical care hospitalist internists who deal with uh, HAP and VAP, um, specifically the, the emergency physicians who are on the front line of dealing with patients who have uh, what's designated as HCAP. Um, and we also know that many of these patients designated as HCAP currently uh, are not at risk for MDR pathogens. And therefore, uh, we felt that the group overall, even though many of them are at risk for MDR pathogens, Uh, the group overall will be best dealt with in the CAP guidelines. That makes a lot of sense. And I I think a lot of primary care physicians, at least, were happy to see that change. Dr. Khalil, should patients with suspected VAP be treated based on the results of invasive sampling or non-invasive sampling? 
Thanks for the invitation, Ila. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And uh, the, uh, regarding this question, the, uh, the guideline panel took a very uh, thorough and systematic approach uh, into all the sampling methods that uh, can help us to better diagnose um, our patients with VEP and HAP. And once we, um, you know, we, we review the entire literature and uh, including uh, doing reanalysis of uh, uh, published papers and looking into uh, other uh, systematic reviews also done at Cochrane Library, uh, the, the panel uh, uh, decision was that any method, as long as you have a good quality sampling method, uh, will help you to, uh, uh, you know, to understand uh, better what's happening with the patient and actually provide a better diagnostic approach. So the we could not distinguish uh, advantages of one method over the other in terms of invasive and non-invasive. So the uh, based on the fact that we could not see advantages of one method over the other and the fact that the non-invasive method, uh, methods will provide um, a safer choice in terms of uh, diagnostics, uh, the uh, the panel recommended to, uh, uh, as a priority to go for a non-invasive sampling. Uh, again, uh, emphasizing that uh, we are always looking for a high-quality sample, meaning uh, if you get a... Um, let's say a endotracheal tube aspirate, uh, you were looking for a sputum that's going to have a large amount of white cells and a very little amount of epithelial cells. These are, you know, the traditional uh, uh, kind of uh, quality standards of a sputum collection. And that way you can, you can get a very rapid um, uh, diagnostic instead of sometimes also waiting for invasive procedures that uh, require sometimes hours or sometimes a day or so to, to be executed. So that was the... Uh, the final recommendation of the, the the guideline panel to go for uh, to give prior to non-invasive sampling when we are uh, initially evaluating these patients. That, that's fantastic. That gives good, clear guidance and allows people to move forward expeditiously. Dr. Matursky, in patients with suspected HAP, should treatment be guided by the results of microbiologic studies performed on respiratory samples, or should treatment be empiric? We looked at uh, the data that would uh, enlighten us regarding this issue, and unfortunately, there is almost there are almost no data to guide us. Uh, we certainly know that in many patients, it's difficult to get a, a sample, and patients are often treated empirically. Um, nonetheless, we did not recommend that as a standard practice. Uh, patients with HAP are certainly at risk for MDR pathogens. Um, so, in general, they're going to be treated fairly broadly. Um, and with, without getting a respiratory sample, there, then there is no um, guidance for de-escalation or narrowing of coverage. Uh, in addition, if the patient isn't doing well, then you don't have any uh, guidance for uh, whether or not there might be an organism that isn't being covered by your empiric therapy. So based upon logic as opposed to data, uh, we did recommend that patients should have non-invasive methodologies used to, to obtain respiratory samples. We also recommended uh, blood cultures for these patients for similar reasons, again, acknowledging uh, limited data to support that.
Okay. Dr. Khalil, one of the important elements of this guideline is the emphasis placed on local antibiotic resistance data and the use of local antibiograms. Can you talk a bit about that and how the recommendation is used in the selection of treatment for both HAP and VAP? Sure. The, um, the antibiograms are already uh, pretty much standard in, in, in you know, many hospitals, uh, many institutions, and um, Unfortunately, uh, in, in, there are sometimes not so much a direct line of communication between uh, the microbiology lab or sometimes infection control and some of the uh, clinicians you know, working in different areas of the hospital. So what we are trying to emphasize is not only that this is essential uh, for the care of these patients, but having this line of communication is going to really increase the knowledge of clinicians that are approaching patients with VEP and HAP. And, and the reason why I'm saying that is because um, when, when clinicians are provided with their own specific antibiogram on a regular basis, yearly basis, or you know every six months, every 12 months, whatever, it, the, the frequency is going to depend on the um, on the uh, you know on the size of the hospital is going to depend on the frequency of MDR pathogens. But the fact is, when you are seeing these patients in your ICU in your hospital, uh, and you do know the antibiogram of your hospital, your ICU, the uh, uh, you will have a much higher probability of treating uh, uh, these patients with the appropriate antibiotic because you already have an idea of the flora that lives in that specific unit. So, you know, uh, microbiology cultures results typically take a couple of days to be. Return. Once you know the bacterial flora uh, that live in that specific unit or hospital, uh, that's going to allow you to uh, start empirical treatment in a much more accurate and appropriate way. So, it is a um, uh, you know a, a strong recommendation for us because uh, we believe that the more knowledge you have at that moment that you are given your empiric treatment, the higher the probability to be more accurate and give the right antibiotic. It's interesting to hear you talk about that, and I, I, I so agree. It's one of the things here that we go over as attendings and with our residents uh, regularly, and I've seen their, the evolution of knowledge about antibiotics and antibiotic resistance really change over the last 10 years as we've become used to referring to the antibiogram. Uh, Dr. Khalil, what, what antibiotics are recommended for empiric treatment of clinically suspected VAP? So the the recommendation uh, will um, uh, depend on the risk factors for multidrug resistant pathogens. So in the uh, table two of the guideline, we have a um, a very specific table uh, um, explaining the the risk factors that are important to uh, you know consider when you're seeing these patients. And the reason for why this is important is because if the patient has um, one or more of these risk factors, these are patients that are going to be required uh, treatment for MDR infections. So the five risk factors that are key for VEP um, are prior intravenous antibiotic used, uh, used within 90 days, uh, septic shock at time of uh, diagnosis of VEP, ARDS preceding VEP, five or more days of hospitalization prior to the occurrence of VEP and acute renal replacement therapy prior to VAP onset. So these are these are the the five factors that um, the panel believes that are important when you see uh, by the first time a patient with a suspicion of VAP because these factors will increase the probability of that that you're dealing with a multidrug resistant pneumonia. That being said, then um, we uh, uh, we 
we explain in our table three of the guidelines that you know you have kind of the uh, the gram positive uh, coverage, the gram negative coverage with beta lactams, and the gram negative coverage without beta lactams. And so for the gram positive coverage in general, uh, the approach is going to be based on vancomycin or linazolid. Uh, either drug are fine for the treatment of a uh, suspicion of a uh, gram-positive VAP. For gram-negatives, we're going to have the um, uh, the anti-pseudomonas penicillin, specifically the piperacil and tazobactam, or three cephalosporins. Actually, we're going to have two cephalosporins, cefepim uh, and ceftazidim, two carbapenems, imipenem, meropenem, and one monobactam astrinone. These are potential beta-lactams that you can use for gram-negative antibiotics with anti-pseudomonas activity. And then in the third column, we explain that you can have um, the coverage for gram-negatives with non-beta-lactams uh, that would include fluoroquinolones, the Cipro and the levofloxacine, aminoglycosides, demicacin, gentamicin, and tobramycin. And in case of um, um, more multi-drug resistant um, bugs uh, that we can talk uh, more specifically in each one of these species, uh, we would be able to use polymixins like colistin and polymixin B. So it's it's kind of a broad, and there are many drugs that can be used, but what I'd like to emphasize, and this is what the panel really also emphasized, is that you have to look into um, the clinical picture, you have to look into the risk factors uh, in order to kind of decide your best empirical approach uh, for these patients. Great. That makes a lot of sense. And then, Dr. Matursky, uh, for clinically suspected healthcare, uh, uh, rather not healthcare, I'm so used to saying that, hospital-acquired pneumonia, uh, what antibiotics are recommended for uh, empiric treatment for HAP? Sure. Uh, we use a similar tact when dealing with this issue, uh, that of looking at underlying patient factors that um, would increase the risk for multidrug resistant organisms or uh, in HAP uh, factors that would increase the risk to the patient if the initial empiric therapy was wrong. So severity of illness. That wasn't an issue for VAP because the assumption is that anyone with VAP has severe illness and is at risk for death. But for HAP, there's a huge spectrum of how sick these patients are, and that went into our thinking. So I'm not going to repeat each of the specific antibiotics um, Basically, the, the antibiotic choices are very, uh, the specific antibiotic choices are very similar to the ones uh, recommended for VAP. But I'll summarize by saying for patients who were, were not critically ill, who are not at high risk of mortality, and did not have uh, factors increasing the likelihood of MRSA, we recommended monotherapy with um, drugs that would cover gram negatives, uh, such as piptazo, cefepime, levofloxacin, or an appropriate carbapenem. Um, and those drugs would also cover MSSA, which is an important cause of HAP. Um, so monotherapy could, could treat um, the likely organisms. For a patient um, who was not severely ill but had risk factors for MRSA, uh, in addition to one of those drugs, we recommended either vancomycin or linazolid. And then for the sickest patients with HAP, so those are, that were at high risk of mortality, or were at um, significant risk of MDR pathogens, we recommended double gram-negative coverage plus either vancomycin or linazolid. Fantastic. That gives us clear direction. Dr. Khalil, one of the points discussed in the guidelines is that antibiotic dosing should be determined by pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic data 
rather than the manufacturer's prescribing information. Uh, can you explain a bit about that for our listeners? Sure. The uh, through the you know the last ten fifteen years, we uh, we gather a uh, growing um, information uh, regarding the. Um, uh, the optimal way to administer antibiotics for critically ill patients, especially patients with pneumonia. Uh, and one way that has uh, really been uh, more refined through the years is trying to understand um, how much antibiotics you really need to cover um, certain infections, uh, certain microorganisms, and for how long the antibiotics have to be, you know, above the MIC of the bug, or you know, or is an antibiotic that depends on the, you know, specific peak concentration. There are so many different ways to measure the efficacy of each antibiotic. So, uh, the the panel f uh, found that when looking to, um, you know, all the literature, there is a uh, suggestion that uh, when uh, uh, you optimize the treatment of these patients with the best uh, PK-PD approach, uh, there is a chance that you could improve outcomes. Again, the data still is uh, growing. The data still is not definitive, but uh, the panel felt uh, this could benefit the patients. And as an example, a uh, simple example is um, sometimes measuring and drug concentrations of antibiotics, or instead of giving the 30-minute infusion, let's say, of a cephalosporin or a, or a penicillin, um, you give an extended infusion like three hours, or some of them can give us continuous infusion. And so it, it seems that um, by, based on the data that we have gathered up to this date is that when you give, let's say, extended and continuous infusion, especially for beta-lactams, um, you have a, uh, a better exposure of antibiotics with potential uh, the less uh, even side effects simply because when you do this kind of approach, sometimes you're able to give a total um, less amount of antibiotics within 24 hours. So uh, there is a chance that you could improve the efficacy and potentially even reduce the side effects by um, adopting some of these PKPD approach. So uh, we hope uh, to gather more data um, uh, and keep getting more data in terms of uh, try to better understand this and, and try to apply it to our patients in terms of, uh, um, you know, improving the uh, outcome as well. Yeah, it sounds like that's an area we'll be hearing a lot more about in uh, the years to come. Dr. Matursky, what's the role of inhaled antibiotic therapy? I guess I could summarize by saying that uh, I don't think we know completely what the role will be. Um, the data, I think, are in evolution. But when we, when we did our systematic review, we certainly found uh, a bunch of studies that support there being a potential benefit of adjunctive inhaled antibiotic therapy, so in addition to IV therapy in certain settings. Uh, we did not recommend inhaled antibiotic therapy without IV. Um, and most of the studies um, were not um, ex uh, randomized controlled trials. They were often case control observational studies. But they tended to show improved outcomes in patients who got adjunctive inhaled antibiotics. Hmm. They were generally in a fairly specific population, pa patients who had uh, highly drug-resistant uh, pathogens. Um, so it was fairly a, a fairly narrow population. And because of the limitations of the data, as well as um, the fact that it was a fairly narrow population, as well as the cost and burden that would be associated with giving 
these inhaled antibiotics to every patient. Um, we certainly didn't feel comfortable recommending them for all patients, but we did feel that the data supported uh, adjunctive inhaled antibiotics for patients whose organism was highly resistant and only sensitive to antibiotics where we do not have a real good data set showing that these antibiotics are effective for VAP. And specifically, those are uh, organisms that are resistant to all antibiotics other than aminoglycosides or polymyxins. Um, okay. In those uh, patients with those bugs, um, those are the types of patients that the studies were done on, and uh, we felt comfortable recommending adjunctive inhaled antibiotics for those organisms. Great. That clarifies the specific place where, where one might think of that. The guidelines really are very detailed in discussing therapies for specific organisms. We're not going to, for the sake of time, discuss those recommendations during the podcast, but refer our listeners to uh, look at that information in the full guidelines. Uh, Dr. Khalil, let's next address the length of treatment for patients with HAP and VAP. So the um, for you know for um, lack of evidence for many many years, uh, clinicians have treated uh, VAP and HAP for you know, quite prolonged periods of time, 10, 14, 21 days, for many many years, um, and. The data that is um, coming out in the last 10, 15 years is showing us that uh, you can obtain uh, similar efficacy and safety by using shorter and shorter uh, uh, courses of antibiotics. And based on the systematic review and a very thorough systematic review uh, done by our panelists, um, we uh, we recommended that uh, seven days uh, is on average, probably the uh, you know kind of the um, uh, the ideal uh, course uh, duration of course of antibiotics for most patients, uh, considering that uh, this will provide the efficacy that we're looking for, uh, and will likely actually provide uh, more safety in the sense that we're gonna prevent the use of unnecessary antibiotics uh, prolonged for many days uh, in, in which you're going to expose the patient to side effects, allergic reactions, uh, and the potential development of uh, C. diff colitis and bacterial resistance. So, um, again, this is a, uh, an average recommendation, seven days. Uh, we, in the remarks of our um, executive summary and within the manuscript, uh, we described that the uh, uh, this uh, can vary, can be a little shorter, can be a little longer according to the clinical picture of the patient, but um, it was unanimous uh, from the guideline panel that uh, we can treat um, all these patients with VAP and HAP independent of the microorganism with an average of seven days of therapy. That's great, and there really is uh, increasing attention to side long-term side effect, not long-term side effects of longer lengths of antibiotics, because we're certainly seeing an increase in, in C. diff and other uh, uh, side effects. Uh, Dr. Matursky, what do the guidelines say about uh, how to de-escalate therapy? Well, we say de-escalate. Um, we don't give a lot of specific advice on how to do that. Um, we did a systematic review. Uh, de-escalation is safe for patients, so it does not result in harm. We didn't find a lot of evidence that de-escalation actually um, results in what we're trying to achieve, which is um, reduced uh, induction of antibiotic resistance. 
but it is a logical outcome to expect. And uh, it certainly will reduce antibiotic costs and antibiotic-associated uh, side effects. Um, so um, basically, we're, we're, we came down in favor of de-escalation. Obviously, that's, that can vary depending upon suspected organisms and the antibiogram. But the, the, key, the key construct is once you have a, a specific, specific pathogen isolated, you can narrow antibiotic coverage. And in certain cases, um, even without the identification of a specific pathogen, uh, in a patient who's doing well, uh, the antibiotic spectrum can be narrowed. Yeah, and it, it's it's good to see the acknowledgement in the guidelines, and, and Dr. Khalil, you were explicit about this, that there's still room for clinical judgment. There's an average length of therapy, but there's also judgment, both in length as well as uh, when and how to de-escalate therapy, uh, as you said, Dr. Matursky. Dr. Khalil, our last question, when can antibiotics be discontinued? So it's a perfect question, a segue question for the previous two, Neilena. The uh, and, and I think this is still something that will require, uh, you know, a clinical uh, experience and uh, clinical judgment. Uh, we 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 give, you know, we, we the guideline panel uh, definitely give flexibility to the clinician to make the decision. There is no uh, black and white uh, single um, recommendation to say this is the time to stop or this is the time to continue. What we try to really um, emphasize in the guideline is that uh, your clinical judgment is key for this patient. So we recommend that. Uh, the moment that you know you're already uh, you're already uh, committed to a de-escalation based on the clinical improvement of the patient is going to be the time that's going to start to think about length of therapy when you're approaching your you know seventh day or so. Uh, the patient has clinical improvement. The patient has radiological improvement, laboratory improvement. Um, you know, uh, fever is coming down. Inflammatory markers like white blood cell, procalcitonin, and and so forth. All these things are you know definitely coming to. Uh, down in the right direction, uh, meaning that the patient's healing. Uh, these are the moments that your clinical judgment is going to be key. Uh, and and if you if you put together this you know clinical laboratory improvement with our recommendation of an average of seven days, uh, this is going to be the time that you're going to start thinking uh, of discontinuing uh, the antibiotics uh, for most of your patients. So it is something that comes with evidence and with clinical judgments to to make your best decision on discontinued antibiotics. That makes a lot of sense. So we have a lot of guidance and a lot of uh, need for good clinical acumen. Dr. Khalil, Dr. Matursky, th thank you both so much for uh, joining us for this podcast. Thank you very much. I appreciate the invitation. It was, it was a great pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this was fun. Uh, for the Infectious Disease Society of America, I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick, and uh, thank you all for listening.